We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and the Agra people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. Okay. I reckon we should start. I reckon we're more or less ready. Great. We've now gone 310 bars. <laughs> <laughs> Declan has taken over as uh, producer uh, for the last couple of episodes. So if you notice any drop in the sound quality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, blame me. Blame him. <laughs> but um, what are we talking about? Oh, we've, well, we've, we're doing our kind of um, our namesake. The, the, uh, the Flood on Floods. The Floodcast. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, Flood on Floods. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, we're going to talk about some of the flooding news uh, that's been happening, what, in the past fortnight or so, past week? Yeah, yeah past fortnight well. almost. I think there's been, like, floods spread out in, like, a lot of different places over mm. the last, like, fortnight or so. And La Nina, baby, we love the girl child. <laughs> yeah. So shall we introduce ourselves? Yes, we should do that. Um, so who's in the room? Uh, I'm Matt. I'm Declan. And I'm Joe. So... It's three of us today, um, but before we get into the flooding stuff, I think I wanted to talk about the news a bit. Um, obviously, like, I was genuinely racking my brains trying to think about a news item, like an Australian news item that wasn't just Canberra's full of sickos and perverts, and there's nothing. It's, that's the 100% of the news. It's incredible to the degree, like, yeah, what have we had? So we had um, Christian Porter, we had... All of the staffers just like jacking off on people's desks mm-hmm. and um, like having sex in the prayer room and genuinely like insane shit. Um, Bringing sex a- workers into Parliament House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which there was some amazing discourse online. There was some amazing discourse online stuff. about that. Yeah, basically saying that it's fine. Um, sex yeah, work well, is good. Healthy. Sex is healthy. And therefore, yeah. like, there's nothing wrong with bringing Which a sex worker into your place of work. So wild. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, on this podcast, we are pro-sex worker, but, like, but th- time like, and place. <laughs> I think it's being pro-sex worker doesn't mean you're pro, like, everyone who uses sex worker wherever they want all mm-hmm. the time. Like, yeah. much like it's probably really inappropriate to hire a sex worker and go to the subway yeah. and have live sex on the subway. <laughs> it's also really inappropriate to do that in your workplace. I am... Um... And... It's reasonable that people feel threatened and uncomfortable with you fucking in your, like, <laughs> at a desk that they have to sit at. Like. Yeah. Well, I, Matt, I saw one of your tweets that was like, I personally don't think the Prime Minister of Australia should be wearing a butt plug during question time. And I thought, I read that and I was like, haha, that's a funny bit of a Matt hyperbole. And then I read the tweet you were quoting and it was 100%. It was just literally that. It was like a minister had hired a sex worker who made him wear a butt plug during like estimates. This completely went under the radar. I think Twitter just missed this one because it was a sex worker saying like, oh yeah, like, like this apparently really happened. Was like, oh yeah, me and some other sex workers like were paid by an unnamed member of parliament in order to force him to wear a butt plug during question time, like in parliament. And it was like, oh really? That, <laughs> that seems like I feel like Ospol Twitter just didn't catch on. It really, I mean, there yeah, was a lot. Is, there was a lot to keep up with. But it's very important that legislators take their role seriously, and I personally don't like don't think that you can legislate properly while coming like <laughs> no i maybe it would I, I feel like yeah that's it would be a distraction to say the least and it's also like like obviously unacceptable to look people in the eye and do work <laughs> with a butt plug in like 
I like I don't want I don't want my friends to do that to me. Like I don't want people I know to just be like, I've got a secret. <laughs> well, yeah, so there's that so yeah, the the discourse was was really cursed around that, but it seems like every day like some new fuck story is coming out and it honestly does seem like we're getting to peak sicko, like to the point where I actually can't keep up with all like, and I don't think the news cycle can keep up. Like there was a story that just surfaced and then, and then um, just disappeared again that about a uh, New South Wales MP who I think a, um, a liberal MP unnamed who, and, and one of the labor MPs accused him in question time of raping a sex worker, like said this, this sex worker had come to her and said like, so-and-so raped me at this time and place. Um, and that just like never, I've not heard anything more about that. Then there's the Andrew Lamming stuff, which already feels like, like that happened yesterday. I don't even know totally what that was about, but it's like already gone. It's, it's yeah. like he's been using parliamentary resources to harass people for like over a decade from what I understand. Okay. Yeah. I saw, I saw some, um, text chain about how he went to a hardware store or something on like a on like a press visit or you know just to maybe on his campaign and he took a picture of one of the employees when she was bending over and they had to force him to delete it before he left the store this is like a federal member of parliament we're talking about yeah yeah. Yeah, like how like just entitled how Untouchable, do they yeah, feel? Yeah, mm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, Laming, I think, uh, yeah, Laming's like a young guy. I think he inherited the seat from his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it very much speaks to me, I think, of the kind of private boys' school culture mm. um, where it's just like, yeah, totally unhinged sexual behavior, totally like um, zero accountability, just like encouraged to believe that you can do anything you want for any reason and that no one can touch you and i think so i want to talk a bit about like whether this means that the labor party is going to bradbury the next election um but just uh, before we get on i want to say the only like really good thing i've read about about like the 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 sickos and perverts in canberra was um the bernard Keane article in the mandarin which was which was basically just saying like oh like maybe we should address that everyone's got insecure employment in like this highly like politically charged environment where loyalty is like the most important thing and their boss can fire them at any given moment. Like maybe that's like part of the structural reasons why, why this is happening so much. Um, And everything else has been like kind of mediocre. Yeah, no, there's, I mean, everything else has just been like, it's a problem of culture as opposed to being like, well, actually maybe the way that this workplace is constructed is like part of why there's so much sexual assault in it. And maybe if we do think about it in that lens, we can look at other like workplaces, like the casualization of work across Australia and be like, wow, maybe insecure work makes sexual assault easier for people in power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a good piece in the Sydney Morning Herald um, I just read, which was about this, which was about the culture of young people going to Canberra, um, people who are like 25 on like huge staffer salaries in Canberra, feeling like they're on holiday going to fancy restaurants um, and just treating it like schoolies week, basically. Mm. It doesn't surprise me. And I think like what I was trying, what I was about to say before was that I don't think for a second that the reason the Labour Party has not had any major sickos and perverts scandals coming out and all this is because they don't do this. Like, I mean, obviously we don't know this for sure. This is all very alleged, but 
I think they're just way more disciplined about keeping it under wraps. Yeah, there's a like a culture of loyalty mm. in the Labour Party mm-hmm. which doesn't exist in the Liberal Party. You know, yeah. it comes with like you know Labour. There's been like what four Labour MPs in history who've ever crossed the floor. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, like Bill Shorten was accused of rape about when was this four five years ago, and nothing happened to him. Yeah, it just kind of went. That away. That kind of went away, and you know that was a different, obviously a different time and different social climate um but you know the the point is i don't think that the labor party culture is any different i don't oh. think the people in the labor party are different i don't think they've i think they've all mostly come from that same private school background um and even if you aren't in that background like once you get into the um into canberra like there's very little to stop you doing exactly what you want <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, I think, like, I've heard relatively credible things about the health and safety officer at, like, the Queensland Council of Unions. I think it's, it would be really naive to think that this doesn't happen on the left. I mean, it happens oh, yeah. in the Greens, right? Like, look at oh, how, yeah. like, people defended Buckingham yeah, and yeah, stuff, yeah. et cetera. Uh, well, I mean, my own brief time spent working for United Voice, which is now United Workers Union, um, in, like, a very lowly admin role. Um, I happened to be there like over the, at the Christmas party. I can't remember if I told the story in, on the podcast before, but like one of the other young women who worked there was like, oh, look, like don't go to the toilet alone um, at the Christmas party. <laughs> like, and it was just all very much taken for granted. And, and we all knew exactly who like the men were, who were like, you know, the most likely to, to try something on. Um, like some of them tried it on, not at the Christmas party. Uh, and it was like no one – I mean, what can you do about it? Like there was – yeah, it was very much in that – in the culture. So anyway, like I guess it's just – as always on this show, we <laughs> want to make sure that people are like healthily sceptical and cynical about the Labour Party. Yeah, like because Labour are making a huge thing about this. They're trying to really capitalise on it, especially mm. the people who are like in the – the progressive Labour woman slot. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, closer to home, our best friend Terry Butler is kind of saying this is exactly why Max should not be contesting my seat, <laughs> which seems like a bit of a long bow to draw to, um, to me, but, you know, it's they're definitely making political hay out of it, for sure. Yeah. So I wanted to talk here a bit about what's just happened in the Queensland Parliament, um, which is uh, our own beloved Amy McMahon. Well... Okay, first, yeah, well, um, what's happened is that um, there's been some, I think a bill passed that's updated Queensland's um, law around consent and about uh, what qualifies as rape and what defences someone can use if they're accused of rape. Um, and it's it's tightened up some of the law about whether you can, i trying to remember it. Um, basically, it's, it's tightened up some of the laws, but what happened is that uh, Amy McMahon attempted to pass an amendment to the law, which would introduce a model of affirmative consent, which basically says, um, if you're being accused of rape, you you can't use the defense that uh, you falsely thought the um, other party had consented. You, in fact, you have to prove that you took reasonable steps to uh, secure... Uh, you have to prove that you took reasonable steps to secure consent, to secure um, an explicit and enthusiastic statement of consent. You can't just say that 
you were confused or you can't just say that... She like, didn't say no, yeah, so you can't therefore she, she said yes. She didn't say no defence, basically. Um, and it puts the own onus uh, much more strongly on the accused party to um, prove that, which I, I should say, look, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't, like, hold me too closely to this. I'm like, it's an important subject. But, um, yeah, but basically, Amy tried to introduce... Uh, this amendment introducing a model of affirmative consent to Queensland's rape laws, and that amendment was rejected by the Labor Party, um, who have since gone online to just accuse Amy of harming women. Yeah, so can you explain some of this? Because I saw there was a big um, a big ruckus and I didn't pay any attention. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like what happened is that a couple of the um, state MPs, uh, John T. Bush and Melissa McMahon, especially... John, John T. Bush, for context... Yeah is the member for Cooper and she um, nearly – so she, she's like a uh, first-term MP. The, so Kate Jones used to hold that seat. She stepped down before the last election. So it was Jonty's, um the new Labor member, but the Greens ran a really, really strong campaign in that seat and actually almost won it. So she is feeling extremely spooked by the Greens yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah, Jonty is like perhaps the – Queensland MP whose seat is most at risk from the Greens? Look, I will maybe do more about Queensland politics in another episode, yeah. but in my opinion, Cooper yeah. is the next South Brisbane. Yeah, yeah, here yeah. first. Um, and so what John T's accused said is that actually um, the amendment didn't take into account the appropriate sectors. It didn't consult with the appropriate people, um, which is wrong. Um, yeah, was, weren't they drafted by... Yeah. People working in the sexual yes, assault very much space. So, like, yeah. like one of the like like quite prominent Brie Larson who wrote oh it was Brie Larson Brie Brie Lee Brie yeah. Lee Brie who Larson's wrote Eggshell Brie. Skull like mm. it's like like probably has like quite a like significant reputation as one of one of the people who's a lawyer who works in this space like mm. it probably has more I guess like social capital in terms of like capacity to speak on this than most mm. Mm. and apparently like. A look, like quite a few Labor MPs were citing Brie approvingly in their speeches in Parliament, but then also like rejected the amendment that she had helped draft. <laughs> and then all the complaints about it is like these, like it's like I think people like if you're, I saw the, the statement from Jonty Bush on her Facebook, and she's just saying, "Look, I supported." It's the thing the Labor all like these people always kind of do is they say, "Well, yeah, like in principle, I support like." affirmative consent and i'll keep fighting for it mm. but um you didn't go through the proper channels so actually you have to reject that i think it's like most of what i've seen them trying to do is is what they often try to do with the greens which is just simply like demonstrate that you don't have the the chops like you don't actually know how how to how to draft legislation mm. you don't like know how to go through the like the processes properly in order to to write stuff and be like well the greens are a bunch of like incompetent good-hearted but incompetent like people um and i think like mostly what like what i've kind of like understood what they're trying to do to amy in this case is just try to bully her into shutting the fuck up and be Mm. like and make her feel like she's incompetent make Mm. her feel like she can't draft legislation yeah which is a despicable thing to someone who's trying to make the law better yeah to protect women yeah agreed um so what's the What's the go now? Like, is that just it? No, no affirmative consent. Um, basically, yeah. yeah. Like in terms yeah. of, you know, they, they voted it down. Um, I don't know if it. It might go to review or something. Mm. Um, I'm not actually sure, but it's mostly egregious to me because they're all so like John T. Bush and like um, Melissa McMahon and Terry Butler and you know all these other people. If you go and look at their social media, it's just like 24 hours a day, just like 
uh, talking about the liberal sex stuff mm. and like this is why we, we need, need more, more women, women in parliament, in parliament. but if uh, the, a woman we don't like gets into parliament we will make yeah, her yeah, life yeah. hell and also like we're still hello we're women in parliament we're still gonna vote against like this law that protects women yeah like don't get don't get us wrong here the, like, the whole thing reminds me actually very much of um when amy was speaking about um first nations rights and like yeah, how it's very similar yeah like you know queensland labor has actually ridden roughshod over the the um, struggles and demands of indigenous people to you know open in order to open um, new mines and and basically like please their corporate donors and um, they were and she didn't uh, when the speaker was calling the the chamber to order because all the labor people were going nuts like were not letting Amy were like like screaming over Amy's speech so the speaker was calling the chamber to order and Amy remained on her feet while the speaker was telling everyone else to shut up. And then that became, Amy, how dare you disrespect the speaker, an Indigenous woman, by remaining on your feet while she's calling the chamber to order. It's like this incredibly strange triple think um, whereby, you know, you may think that you're uh, saying and doing something progressive, but actually through this like weird, um, you know, seven layers of identity politics, you in fact are the oppressor. (laughs) It's very disingenuous. It's very bad faith. And I don't think anyone... To further to what you're saying, Declan, I don't think anyone, any normal person, um, A, like really knows or pays attention to this stuff or B, finds it at all compelling or convincing. It's 100% just trying to demoralise. No, like parliament, parliament is so detached from most people's lives. I, like I can't imagine if you like stopped 300 people in the street, one of them would be able to tell you what had happened in no. Queensland parliament that week. No. Like, I think even if you did that, like, around the corner from Queensland parliament, you might get one public servant who, like, knows because they're paid to do it. Yeah. But that's that's probably it. Yeah. And, and also, the I mean, I was talking about this with um, Nicole, Amy's chief of staff, yes, uh, day before yesterday, and um, she said, you know, like, journos don't really report on what goes on in parliament. Like, they're, they're there to... They're, like a lot of this, a lot of the sneaky stuff that the Queensland Parliament does, or you know, Queensland Labor as the government does, in order to stifle debate and or in order to not let things get on the agenda, um, doesn't ever get reported on. Like, and so the public doesn't know anything about these these governance processes that arguably are quite important in in setting the agenda of what even gets debated. Um, like that's politics in and of itself. That's power, but. It's, you know, it's not a sexy story, so it doesn't ever get talked about. I certainly didn't know about that before I became involved in politics. The thing that made, that's made me, like, probably angriest in relation to, like, what, what Amy was trying to do and speak up for a few Indigenous people who were struggling for, for control of their land was all these, indig- like, all these Labour people on Facebook basically being like, oh, well, I guess you're, like, actually the traditional owners have given their approval on this and, mm-hmm. like tacitly what they're saying is Howard era like native title laws are the be all and end all of of ascertaining like native title in Australia Mm. and it's (laughs) it's just it's so disgusting yeah it's yeah I mean native title is a fascinating topic and one we should talk more about maybe with someone who's an actual expert on it but suffice to say it's like really not at all like the simple I think a lot of particularly middle class liberals just see native title as like a good thing like oh well we we want the native title like but it's actually this incredibly laborious process like a short native title claim would be 10 years and the question of who gets um who gets you know 
uh, determined to be native title owners is is rife with like you know all kinds of uh, internal politics and uh, you know people are like often very often you know there's two different groups each trying to become each trying to be recognized as a native title owner so it's just not at all the case to say that like this is you know an effective way of dealing with land claims or or that it works in anyone's interest really except the government's because it, it gets to you know you're constantly kicking the can down the road through this incredibly long process anyway um oh yeah the other thing i <laughs> just wanted to talk about yeah. in terms of queensland parliament is a. Uh, Queensland's laws around sex work, it turns out, are really bad. Mm. Um, so if you're a sex worker in Queensland, it's illegal to call another sex worker before a job and tell them where you're going. Um, it's illegal for you and another sex worker to hire a receptionist. It's um, Or like a driver or a security person. Um, it's illegal for you to advertise what you actually do. Mm. Um, and there's something else. There's like a... Long list of things that it's illegal to do that just make your job way harder and more dangerous. And effectively, my again, like not an expert, but my understanding is that like one of the safest and best models for doing sex work is a kind of collective of sex workers model where you might say, like, which is distinct from like a brothel where like we have legal brothels, but they're like run by one guy who's like the boss and then they exploit the workers. Um, and that's as and fucked as brothel licenses. So there's like what, yeah. like would be less than 10 or like a, there'd there's be like, like a dozen in the state. 20, kind of I think. Yeah. Oh, right. It's a very small amount of legal brothels. Um, but yeah, like the, like that model of like a collective where you kind of all work together and look out for each other is expressly criminalized under Queensland law. Mm. So it's either like you work in a brothel or you're a sole trader and then you're not allowed to collaborate with anyone else in any way. Mm. Um, which which ends up, I think, highly probably ad- advantaging. Is that a word? Um, anyway, it, it, it makes it like the, the model of like diary of a cool girl, like, you know, upper echelons of sex work like high class cool girls and escorts where it's you know like working on your own is maybe easier um obviously it's never safe but like i think for a lot of like people who aren't at that level working in a collective is like a much safer and better idea um but yeah that that is criminalized hmm. anyway um and yeah like that's another really clean example of something that the queensland parliament could change Mm. and should change um and like really like needs to be reviewed and in fact like some of that's quite like simple and common sense changes but again like nothing's you know nothing gets done about that Mm. and like for all of the kind of strong progressive women talk this is another like the like the consent stuff it's uh another set of laws that could very easily um benefit mostly women that mm. they're in fact have no interest in looking at mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah almost like represent representational models of politics are not actually yeah. very it's convincing it's <laughs> amazing how many people just forget that margaret thatcher yeah is yeah, like yeah. one of the most like if not the most important political figure of the last like 50 100 mm-hmm. years is mm-hmm. like it's all and she wasn't like a rich woman either like it's almost like poor middle-class women can still have really bad opinions and, in fact, work in ways that structure society for men or for rich people. It, your positionality yeah. doesn't really affect who, like what you think. like perfect avatars of, <laughs> of identities and we, that's just, you know, there's a one-to-one relationship between that and our politics. Strange. Strange. I don't know. It sounds, sounds weird. Um, yeah. Should yeah. should we move on to the substantive the the, the floodcast part? Yeah, of, yeah. Of just this um, yeah. 
I think we wanted just a quick shout to our boy, the Ever Given. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely sending our best wishes to the Ever Given. Yeah, yeah. The, the big boy time. in the Suez Canal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, we love the boy. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. Like, like I'm not sure, like, you know, this is all pure, like, pure, purely from my mind palace. But I can't help but think that this boat getting stuck in the Suez Canal is as much of an exogenous, cost, like, shock to capital accumulation as Corona. Like... A huge, so many boats go through the Suez Canal every yeah. day. It's Look, I need to know more about this because the only media, only ever given media I've consumed are memes, and I love the memes. I was saying before we started that as soon as I saw this, I was like, this is the most memeable moment of 2021. Like, you almost couldn't have designed a better meme. But I'm not actually up to up to speed with the global trade aspect, which also seems kind of serious. I mean, I think it's pretty important. So, like, like obviously, Europe is like one of the biggest markets of consumer goods, and China is one, and like East Asia in general is one of the bigger like producers of consumer goods. And a lot of those go on big container ships through the Suez Canal. I think like one every ten minutes or something. I think it's like I think it. I've I've seen different things bandied around, but like ten percent of global trade has been halted by this boat, and there's an awful lot of like, there's an awful lot of capital that, like, needs to be realized, like, through the process of selling iPhones or, like, whatever it is that's on these boats that simply can't happen because <laughs> we've got a big, beautiful boy. <laughs> He's stuck. <laughs> and um, is there any progress in getting him out? Like, Oh, well, we've all seen the little tractor. I mean, obviously the little tractor. <laughs> uh, that's still going. Yeah. It's yeah, still in there digging away. Going. Good on him. Good on him. Um, um yeah, I also spent like just coincidentally like a couple of months ago a Wikipedia time looking at the um the Panama Canal being like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. Canals are like amazing technology. Engineering is great. <laughs> there you go. Well, the Suez Canal is a really important historical flashpoint for like uh, colonial struggles mm-hmm. and like um, post-colonial struggles. Um, I think in the 50s when Gamal Nasser tried to nationalize the canal. Um, and I think I, there was that, a period there where he took control of it and yeah. then they like bribed him like three million dollars to like give it back and he was like thank you for the money no i will not give it back (laughs) i feel like british i can't remember if britain like actually invaded or if they almost invaded or if they like invaded and got owned there was a like it was a crisis in the there was definitely like the suez crisis i read a really good book about it at some point and then forgot everything that happened in the book yeah i watched a a mediocre episode of the crown about it and also forgot everything but i I do remember an uh um, mood of tension I'm sure our yeah. listeners are all just like completely rolling their eyes at our lack of historical knowledge. Um, but yeah, we do know that it's it's a thing. It's important. It's a thing. It's there. Um, and I would suggest that part of why the US wants to keep a military outpost in Israel is connected to the importance to global trade of the Suez Canal. Mm-hmm. Well, the Ever Given is just is doing praxis right now by yeah. blocking it. So Critical support. <laughs> sending our support. Ever given. <laughs> yeah, it's probably done a more important industrial blockage. Than <laughs> like <laughs> any union in the past oh, years. That would be the greatest strike of all time. No, no. If, if, if protest, a union could like, like block ten percent of global trade, oh god. Because like <laughs> you could just do it if you're one of the the twenty guys, the crew of twenty guys who run this cargo ship that's like bigger than the Empire State Building, and you're just not getting treated well by your boss. So you just and like, you're not as well. People well, who work on cargo ships have it awful. Yeah. You can't see what I'm doing with my hand, but I'm just making a little boom, just sideways gesture. Um, you just do that. It's like, all right, like, how much will you give me to not do that? I reckon it's a lot. <laughs> or maybe you and all your boys should go and have a discussion around how much you need people to drive ships properly and yeah. what like a, what a good remuneration for that is. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, so anyway, that's um, that's that. That's that on that. That's so we wanted to do like a flood cast proper and talk about the floods because uh, actually just as Joe, you were saying that like the the whole like media like like apparatus in Australia has been turned solely to like the freaks and perverts that run our country and mm. like that's probably not unreasonable. We've just had like one of the most significant natural disasters in a really really long time. I think mm. this is these are like in terms of land affected. I think the biggest floods we've ever had. No, oh, really. I just keep hearing the term once in a hundred years or hundred year flood being thrown around. But you hear the term once in a hundred years every, like every year five, now. Yeah, so. well, yeah. <laughs> that's also true. I mean, that's part of it, right? This, yeah, exactly. Like, insistence that this is a um, atypical natural disaster and not just part of life under anthropogenic climate change. And even like, even not right, like, like. All, like if you, I was looking at all these like satellite images of all the floods and stuff, and it's like, oh, like you can see looking at that landscape that all that land obviously floods all the time. Like mm. that's, like they're called flood plains. Like, like reason? it's all covered by farms, and it's like, oh wow, I wonder if all those farmers were attracted by the rich alluvial soil. <laughs> Where could that have come from? Like, I wonder if it was dragged off the mountains and spread out over the land by some sort of rainfall event. Well, this, I mean. I haven't read the book that we're going to be discussing um, or that's going to form part of our discussion called um, A River with a City Problem. But my understanding is that the author talks about this mindset in yeah, yeah, in yeah. Brisbane city planning where it's like this is just a floodplain and everyone's insisted on building a city there and then pretending like they're surprised when it floods. Is that basically Pretty it? much, yeah, 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 yeah. So this is a book called yeah, uh, A River with a City Problem by Margaret Cook. I actually wrote a piece for Flood Media about it a while we'll back. Link to that um, in the called show description. Deeper Water, um, which was interesting to go back and read again. And a hell of a Paul Kelly song. Yeah, yeah, I named it after the Paul Kelly song. Yeah, um, but yeah, like that's basically the thesis. Is she goes over the the history of flooding in Brisbane from I think the uh, the eighteen ninety three flood. Um, the those floods were really amazing. Like I yeah. think like what I didn't realize about that was apparently it flooded about as bad as 1974 or 2011 three times in a month whoa like, i actually just, didn't know that. it just like it went up and then like it rained in a different part of the catchment and it happened again like three times in really quick succession and it just it like really destabilized the colony like it, the the colony kind of like nearly crumbled after Fuck. um yeah like but her thesis is that like i mean there's a lot of like the arrogance of man kind of thing where mm. she's just like look we keep thinking that if we just build a dam here or like we just do enough hydraulic engineering um, that like this isn't going to happen again. Mm. But we also just for some reason assume that it won't even though like... Yeah, it's very magical thinking. Yeah, Brisbane obviously just like floods about once every 50 years. Um, like it obviously like flooded in the 1890s. I think there was one in the 30s. Um, yeah, there was. It wasn't as bad. Yeah, it wasn't as bad. There was the big one in the 70s and the big one in 2011. And, like, you know, it's going to happen again, like, eventually, like, sooner or later. Um, and, like, probably, like, it'll start happening a lot more frequently now. Um, and that in no way prevents people from just building houses on land that they know is going to be flooded. Um, because we don't actually... Like, I, I wrote about this in my piece, but, like, my house was flooded in the 2011 floods and fortunately didn't quite go under because it's a, it was an old Queenslander and so it's, like, up on stilts and mm. so the water came in under the house and didn't quite make it through the floorboards. Mm. But, like, I definitely 
didn't know that that was a thing that could actually happen in Brisbane, despite the fact that it in fact had already happened. Yeah, and had it happened to your parents, right? Like that would have been your parents' like living memory. Uh, No, I don't think so. I don't. Oh, because they didn't grow up in Brizzy. No, it's seventy four. Seventy four, right? Like no, 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 no. My parents wouldn't have been in Brisbane then. Yeah, okay. Um, but like you know, obviously living memory of plenty of people, like. We're at the bottom of a hill near the river. Um, it would not have been like, you know, out. Like, I think there was even like a flood memorial in the park near our house. <laughs> like, oh, oh, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah. What's that wonderful, wonderful meme? Well, this doesn't affect me because I can't read. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was like, but it is like, um, that's what she writes about is this kind of collective amnesia where we just keep building houses in these places because like what are we going to do just like knock down the entire city build it somewhere else like on top of more hills we're not going to do that it's easier just to ignore the problem until it fucks us up Mm -hmm. and then just like keep going basically and then just get in there and like clean up and be like well that was bad but it's over now yeah, and I think like you put in the notes that underprivileged areas like Western Sydney are often the hardest hit um, by like climate change disasters and that is you know true but I also think like with Western Sydney in particular there's another um like I heard an anecdote recently that uh it's it's really hot out there and like it's going to it's predicted that even in the next 10 years or so like temperatures daytime outdoor temperatures in that part of the world could reach 50 degrees celsius so it's like but but it's an interesting thing thinking about that versus floods where that's more of just a like a, a frog in a boiling water sort of situation where it's just getting worse and worse, but it's not a disaster, quote unquote, so no one reports on it. it the urban heat island effect is like probably the biggest public health like like problem in Australia that gets almost no discourse whatsoever. And the the way we like design our cities, where it's like like particularly like you look at like the the kind of big like Delphin or land lease kind of like housing developments in the outer suburbs that all have black tile roofs mm. um, and then are designed very much for like for people to drive in and out mm. and use the suburb as a dormitory from which they commute to like the CBD to work mm-hmm. is like do, you probably couldn't design an area better for it to hold heat in the environment better. And like even when the, the, the bushfires happened, when was that? That was around 2011 as well, right? The Ash Wednesday. Um, which ones? The, yeah, the, the the big ones. Um, I don't know. They they seem to be happening all the time now. So yeah, I think um, like I think 2011. I think because I remember everyone being like, "Wow, the country's on fire and it's flooding. Why oh, can't yeah, we no, build a pipeline?" Like, yeah, yeah. um, like I, I think a few hundred people were killed in those bushfires. But what wasn't kind of like didn't enter into the news cycle, and that was that more people died of more people died in the cities than you'd expect to die. Like I think you know they've got like public public health people use like. A, like a rolling 100-day average of how many people die, you know, and it normally sits at, like, let's say 10. But over these heat waves, it went up to 15 because, mm. like, old people just start dropping off the perch when yeah. it gets to 40 degrees. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it, it it's always kind of – it's wild to me that then the solution, um, quote-unquote, is not – is just to um, kind of uh, introduce a Band-Aid. So, like, air conditioners. Everyone needs to have air conditioners in their house. But what if you can't afford an air conditioner? Like, I've only ever lived in one house with an air conditioner, and that was, like, a share house. Um, I can't, like, most of the properties, like, uh, you know, um, self-contained dwellings with air conditioners are out of my price range. 
And then if you get one, like, can you afford the power bills? So like it, it just becomes this process by which the people at the bottom are just dropped off gradually. And, like, and more importantly, with air conditioners, like how they work is by transferring heat from like <laughs> yes. inside to also outside. Also like, What it does is make it hotter. Like, it makes it hotter. Like it makes yeah. it hotter outdoors. It just like makes, we all have like, like these increasingly atomized boxes of mm. like heat safety that we can exist in wherever in our car or in our house. And mm. like, we couldn't possibly meet out outdoors to talk about how hot it is. Yeah. But we're getting away from the flooding, but uh, yeah, I guess my, my point is that those slower processes of, you know, arguably equally bad things happening in the climate are easy to ignore. Um, Whereas with, you know, the flooding, it's hard to ignore at the time. It's easy to then forget about it afterwards and pretend, oh, that, you know, that happened and that won't Mm. happen again. Yeah. Um, And like even in Brisbane, like a house on the top of a hill is worth more than a house at the bottom of a hill. Well, let's talk a bit about the geography of this, though, because um, in the 2011 floods, like a lot of the areas that flooded were like places next to the river, which is actually like historically, you know, wealthier Mm. Um, higher property values so I think like even for a lot of wealthy people whose flat whose houses went under or were otherwise like um, affected like it was they were for once on the wrong side of of capitalism and I remember like in the years that followed all the stories about how that you know these people um, you know their, their insurance companies wouldn't pay out and they mm. kind of realized oh shit like I'm you know I'm actually not on the right side of this like i'm i'm not the you know you're not the privileged class you thought you were obviously you are compared to a lot of other people but like it didn't work mm. out the way they had expected it to yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah that was us like our insurance company didn't pay out yeah and, and like we weren't especially poor to be clear mm. um but like yeah the insurance company just like didn't cover that particular kind of flood or like um, oh no! It's because like the rain stopped twenty four hours before the flood, <laughs> so it doesn't count. Sorry, get fucked. Yeah, I think like what? Yeah, it's just I like mean, you can't control that. It doesn't matter. Like the floodwaters are still going. Into but is the it house. like is it local flooding? Because like I think a lot of like a lot of like flood insurance will be for like if the stormwater mains burst mm. next to your house and your house floods, as opposed to like it rained in the different catchment and that mm. flowed down the river. But none of this is things. You- you have no control over any of this. Like, this is the reason you take out flood insurance to me. Anyway, like, that's all sort of self-evident yeah. that insurance companies are out to screw you. But it's, yeah, it, it, in a way, I f- yeah, I feel like a lot of wealthy people had their first, maybe one of their first experiences with um, the injustices of, of, of capitalism mm. through the floods. Mm. Uh, but also, like, not that that I think changed anything major about like the way we relate to one another. No. And the other thing that people always bring up about the floods is like, oh, this is often people will bring it up as maybe the only time they experienced genuine sort of communal feeling and like mm. talk to their neighbors and were involved in a in a project um, to help out and they loved it. Like people will often bring this up as a great thing that happened, like that they really enjoyed it, but then it goes away and it doesn't seem to have really any lasting well, impact. That's that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it because yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't like a part of flood when flood was being named, mm. but I f- like, I instantly assumed it was to do with the, like the sense of an incredibly strong commute, like, like, it was just commu- communism. We just had communism for like three days. <laughs> we had flood communism. <laughs> we had flood communism. And I think like like these sort of ex- exogenous shocks to our society are, I think, how you know that, that communism probably is the 
base level that we would get to if it wasn't for power sitting on top of us because all of a sudden like everyone was helping it was the first time i'd ever like saw the military not as a fundamentally like oppressive and monstrous institution because like i was on the street helping clean up one of my friends like grandfather's garage and stuff and then we got back to the street and the army came and there was just like all these trucks and all these big hefty lads like (laughs) doing a heap of work to make life better for everybody who had experienced like water where it doesn't normally go this is what the lads should be doing this is what we should have lads for and all of a sudden i was like oh i understand like what what a what role a public institution like the army would have in a decent society yeah like oh there actually is room to have like like uh, an institution that's really good at logistics it's really good at like getting stuff done and that we could use that for the benefit of all of us instead of for like like well at, at the time all i'd known the australian army to be used for was asserting australia's like oil interest in East Timor and then like following the US into its imperial wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. David Graeber talks a bit about this in Bullshit Jobs where he cites a study uh, that was done with people serving in the US Army where they got to like, I don't know how this happened, but um, someone arranged for them to like go and I can't remember actually the details of the project, but let's say they like helped to build a school or a hospital or something somewhere in the Middle East. And um, so doing like something actually useful and afterwards they were all like, that was great. I loved it. This is why I joined the army. Like I want, you know, I want to help. I, I want to be part of something. Um, and they just never get the chance to do it because the army is like a fucked institution. But yeah. Because yeah, that's not what the army's for. Like- that's not what the army's for. That's not what it's designed for. Um, but then, yeah, like occasionally in these moments, it kind of slips through the cracks and it ends up fulfilling a much a different function um, that it arguably yeah, should be doing. Yeah, like heaps of people came around to help um, after our house got flooded. Um, and someone brought around these uh, karchas, which is these like high pressure hoses that used to clean mud off things. Because like, cause the whole like under the house area was still fucked and all like full of like horrible mud and all the furniture was tossed around. And we definitely had like, like, 10 or 20 people just over there helping us Mm. um, and, like, trying to fix it and, like, bringing around sandwiches and, like, um, yeah, like, slept in a neighbor's house for, like, a week or so. Um, But there is a kind of... Like, on the one hand, that's really good, but then on the one hand, it really gets capitalised on by anyone who can, like, exploit that for their own benefit really quickly to be, like... Gee, Queenslanders coming together, including me, a politician. I'm <laughs> yeah. doing that as well. Oh well, Kevin Rudd got a huge amount of like, so, like Anna Bly as well. Like she, people loved her during the floods. Um, yeah, and the other thing that comes to mind when you're talking about that, Matt, about like the kind of um, the community response um, is. Uh, Naomi Naomi Klein's written a lot about this. I have to be careful to not say Naomi Wolf because um, I don't want to defame <laughs> Naomi Klein, the good Naomi. Um, but she, so she obviously writes a lot about about natural disasters and climate change. And one of the things she's brought up before is um, the fact that, like, when it happens, when natural disasters happen on like a really big scale, and you can't recover in like a couple of weeks, like most people in Brisbane were able to sort of get their lives back on track within say a month or two um and the response was pretty good and pretty targeted and things went back to normal i would say relatively quickly um but when when that's not possible and then you get say climate refugees like people do want to 
have that response at first, and they do, um, of, you know, everyone helping out and sharing resources and so on. But then there's like a, there's inevitably a resource squeeze. And then you get, like, she, she cites the example of um, a town in California where the entire town burned down, basically, because of the wildfires. So that then all the people in that town basically went to the next town. And they, you know, they were obviously, like, opened the door, their doors to them and, and helped them out. But then after a while, it was like, well, you know, we don't have enough to share to begin with. Like, you know, this is actually putting a strain on our town. And then, you know, you obviously get from that, like, xenophobic sentiment start brewing. So... Like as 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 good as like flood communism and related variants are, I think it often it can end up letting the state off the hook a little bit. It's kind of that neoliberal devolu- devolution of services to the level of the community and 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 non-government organisations, which is like Mutual a dangerous aid. path to go down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think like part of what like allowed for that like three days of communism to exist was that it affected everybody, and it was like, and no one could do. The normal life but they were like kind mm. of accustomed to doing it was this genuine break where like the ways that you exist in society were completely disrupted you couldn't like you couldn't go to work because mm. there was water in the way so you like you had to do whatever it was to fill up your day and well if you looked around there was a lot of people who could probably do with a bit of that time so you may as well go and do it mm. whereas like in these kind of like longer things where it, it can't go back and there, there is no shock to like the there is no shock to like the the daily routine well, the daily routine like continues because it has to, mm. and then like you know people who are kind of preventing you from doing that feel like leeches and like feel yeah. like the reason that you can't have like nice things. Yeah, like oh, are you? Oh, so wait, are you just sleeping in my living room like for a year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that's like, kind well, of yeah, it. I don't have a home. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and yeah, like. It becomes, and there's a kind of like shit nationalism that goes on as well, where it's like Queenslanders love to hang together. We're the only people who do that. Like, well, I noticed, like, I think it's Suncorp actually who has the ads for their insurance, and it's all about like Queenslanders just, you know, we can weather every type of weather condition. It's like, this is cheeky. <laughs> this is so cheeky from you, and he didn't even pay out flood insurance. Mm. Parochial advertising is the best kind. <laughs> I did enjoy in the last floodcast that um, when you guys said Queenslanders are not parochial, like we just want everyone to be Queenslander. We want to <laughs> yeah. expand Queensland with tanks. Is a is a um, a strategy I can get behind. <laughs> Critical support of tanks. Yeah. Um, I thought um probably the most interesting like like book to to read alongside this for the with a city problem was. That, that I was kind of relating to in my brain is um, Ellen Meeskin's Woods, uh, The Origin of Capitalism, where she talks a lot about capitalism emerging in, like, in Britain at a certain time in relationship to, um, like, tenant farmers and, like, where this concept of improvement was coming from. Because I was noticing that she was talking about, like, when when Brisbane was being settled, that, like, the reason that, like, people, like, were, like, no, we absolutely have to settle on the floodplain was, like, this idea of all this, like like fertile soil not being improved and like not being set to work in in aid of like human progress and it was really easy to draw a straight line between the way like the way that the enclosures kind of functioned in England to like the way that like enclosure was functioning in in Brisbane in in the 1890s like in the 1840s to like where we are in like 74 or 2011 where actually property developers have been able to like shape shape the like the political kind of 
like system in Queensland to such a way that we do have a huge amount of people living in floodplains. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like um, that's kind of what I was thinking about with this this whole amnesia thing is like because we do allow our city to be designed and built according to the prof- the profit motive first and foremost. Um, that uh, I think mandates this kind of a collective amnesia that we have where it's well okay this basically to me this relates back to landlord brain yes um, which is one of my favorite topics landlord brain which seems to involve a kind of very deliberate just pretending that certain things if they inconvenience you in any way simply don't exist like for instance the um oh i Quick diversion. I have an update on the the trash pile story from. Mm-hmm. Oh last. yeah, we love the trash love pile this. story. So I okay. So I cannot um, believe this is ongoing. It's like over a year since you moved out. Yeah. No. Well, actually, it's almost a, a year, like almost exactly, and since he first turned up at the house to yell at us for daring to ask him to clear away this pile of trash in the garden. Anyway, so I was um, at my old house uh, last or earlier this week. Um, and because I wanted to park my car there and walk across to uni. And um, and I was like getting out of the car and I noticed like the trash pile is no longer in the garden. And so the two people who um, now live there were like out in the garden. So I was like, oh, hey, like it's a weird question, but I used to live here. Like just wondering what about the trash pile? And they, but long story short, it, it emerged that someone, I, you know, <laughs> we can probably draw our own conclusions as to who that might be, uh, my landlord basically old landlord had just fucking thrown this trash down into the rainforest gully in the back of the house which was the thing that he was always telling us to do and that we were like well that's illegal you can't dump trash into the gully he'd just gone and done it and then i walked down to the gully and i looked up and i was like oh yeah that's it (laughs) that's the trash (laughs) there it is (laughs) so he got rid of the problem in sort of much the same way as as property developers kind of deal with the problem of 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 floodplains which is to first to pretend it doesn't exist and then I guess I, I'm maybe drawing this analogy a little bit um, far, but he just chucked it in the gully where, it, and well, in his mind, it does not exist. <laughs> I kind of get it though. There's this kind of like absolute fury that anything or anyone or even like a law of nature would dare to intervene with the process of accumulating profits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, oh, this river floods every 50 years. So if I build a house here, it's going to destroy the house. What no. if I just built the house anyway? Yeah. <laughs> I'll show the river. <laughs> so I'm different. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It really is, though. It really that might is affect just you, like, but I'm different. Yeah. Well, look, I'm different. Won't happen. Like, everyone else's house might get flooded, but mine will be fine. Look, I'm just different. Okay? Well, and- I think that's, like, one of the one of the um, the best predictors of if someone thinks thinks climate change is a hoax. Um, and this is, like, true of, like, a, like, Anglophone countries, but it's pretty different in other places. I think there's obviously, like, specific dynamics happening in Anglophone countries that aren't happening elsewhere. But, like, the biggest predictor of is climate change fake is I'm a, like, belief in the state, like, agreement with the statement, I believe in free market capitalism. And there is obviously something where, like, this, anything that, like, interferes with, like, the idea that natural laws may interfere with the, this ideal system of, of accumulation and that's fundamental goodness has to be anathema. Like, it, 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 you cannot believe it to be true. And I also think, like, it's particularly true 
that landlord brain around climate change and flooding occurs in the case of literal landlords, by which I mean property developers, like people who are not building their own houses on the floodplains. They're just building a house or a, a building that will, um, you know, net them a nice bit of profit. So in that case, like it is very, very easy to ignore it because if, if things go wrong, it will, you will not be, you know, your, your life and your possessions won't be affected. Yeah. Yeah. There's absolutely no legal precedent for it. You sold me this house 60 years ago. Um, and it turns out that that was like the advertising material you were using then was it's safe. We built Somerset Dam. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, so I was thinking about what the future of this is, right? Cause we're in a stage now where one in every hundred years disasters are obviously coming every year. Like we've had the floods this year. Um, oh, fires we've had last year. Fires last year. We've had a little, little thing you might've heard of called the coronavirus that's been in the news <laughs> a bit. Um, and we also have been thinking about economic disasters as well, because like that capitalism obviously produces this cycle of like economic crashes. And, like the big one in two thousand and eight, there was the like virus recession, and like terrifyingly and inex- inexplicably, we didn't seem to have like a massive market crash. But there's definitely the, one coming. The that sense seems is to be that like the trigger's been pulled, but the powder hasn't been ignited. But there yeah. is absolutely a bullet at the bottom of that barrel. Uh, I yeah. think, um, you know, we've talked about this before as well, but Australia in particular, due to our particular set of political economic circumstances, has been insulated from a lot of these crises so far. But um, especially, I think, so yeah, from, from the economic crisis and from the coronavirus crisis, we sort of escaped somewhat unscathed or relatively so but the one area where we can't really rely on our geographic isolation and our big bundle of stolen wealth to keep our country going and is um climate change climate disasters (laughs) like those are coming for us possibly more than the rest of the world and i think what you were saying before about like like probably heatwave is the one that we that we're we're just you know weather frogs in the increasingly warm water but that doesn't produce that sort of like exogenous exogenous shock and three days of communism so we don't have that opportunity of of building solidarity like mm. like i sure as like probably the least solidarity i feel is when it's like 42 degrees like, <laughs> nobody wants to go like, out door knocking in that weather like, no it's, one it's, wants to clean up someone else's garage like I, with with that sort of just like discomfort i think you don't suffer together you suffer alone you must suffer alone because you you just have to stay in your house and put the air conditioning on if you're lucky enough to have it um and i I think that's probably where there's there's real room for something that that's been happening in Western Sydney is they've been trying to design like outdoor cool refuges mm. where like for people who do not have access to like to to air conditioning at home that like there is a place that they can go outdoors where it is cool where they've I don't know in a, in Brisbane at least it would definitely be by the river under the figs mm. where like no matter like no matter what temperature it is it's actually very pleasant to mm. sit there but those sorts of things can only really be used if if you can take a few days off during like one of these crises and with the, with the kind of speed up of, of Australian capitalism, it's really hard to see how that can happen and where these like opportunities to experience brief moments of solidarity might come from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also like the, we're getting into different things now, but obviously like the policing of public space is a big part of that. So like who is not welcome to, go down to the park and sit under the yeah. trees. And- oh, well, you absolutely know, like, if if it was, like, a, a heat... Like, in Western Sydney, when there is a heat wave, which will happen this summer, I guarantee, or will happen last summer, etc. 
I'm sure like a bunch of Lebanese teens or a bunch of Aboriginal teens are going to have a very different experience of using these cool refuges mm-hmm. than say like a bunch of nice like white grandmas. Mm-hmm. Even like going to the state library, you know, the, the time on a Brisbane tradition of hanging out in the air conditioning in the state library um, is, is harder. Like, uh, you know, that's not an easy option for you if you're a black kid or if you're, um, you know, a rough sleeper, those spaces are not that available. Well, I've, Definitely, like, down at the beach, we've had just several days of torrential rain and, like, a lot of the homeless people down there have been forced to just move into the toilet blocks, basically. Because mm. um, where else are they going to go? They, it's like, you need to be out of the rain. Yeah. yeah. I had the kind of the opposite, um, well, it's the same problem, but the other side of the coin when I was living in Chicago, like, because there were homeless people around the neighbourhood and you kind of got to know them because they all, they all had their specific spots and then started to get really cold like around November and I was like, I wonder where they're going to go. Like, and then it got really cold in December. And then at one point they all just disappeared. And I, to this day, I, I don't know what happened. Cause then they came back, like when the weather was warmer. Um, and then I was, yeah, like, I don't know what the solution, obviously there's some type of solution there where the state designed or whether people just know what, like, you know, this is what I do every year when it gets too cold to be mm-hmm. outside. But yeah, my, a friend of mine who is from uh, Vancouver, um, close to the close to the US border said that um, people like the Vancouver city government or whatever used to like when it got too cold there they would just give all the homeless people like a bus ticket to go south and be like all right have fun like you go to where it's warmer now in Montreal, that was the social safety net when I lived in Montreal um, they all move into the train stations mm. um, and like Montreal has a lot of underground space for the winter so I think they all uh, it's a bit easier for them to all go underground it's um, it's but it's also uh, that's that's a similar thing actually is that like you could a bunch of homeless people can go into the train stations but they couldn't go into the underground shopping centers as easy right. as easily <laughs> yeah um but yeah i mean like to bring this back i think that like i've been thinking a lot about like i think social housing is part of this and like or public housing yeah, more pub- importantly public housing yes yeah public housing and like building cities that have accessible public space accessible public spaces that are sheltered from like increasingly unlivable uh climatic conditions yeah um, um but i think there's also a like naomi klein talks about the like the shock doctrine effect mm. and how in places like um new orleans or like puerto rico after the hurricane or i was just listening to the true and on podcast on haiti after the earthquake mm. where um you know, the vultures descend yeah. and, like, start just, yeah, like, using the recovery process as an opportunity to line their own pockets Yeah, as well. Yeah. It feels uh, like like we're often talking, joking about the concept of climate jobs, but it does kind of feel like there's a climate job in here. Like, this is kind of, this is bleaker, I would say, than going to clean up the reef or going out to the Lantana forests. But, like, we're going to need, like, a disaster core of some kind. And I can imagine as natural disasters get a lot more frequent and severe. Like we won't necessarily be able to rely on the community response as much as we have done. Not because people are like, you know, inherently lazy or selfish, but just because people like, you know, there won't be that, You maybe you, you know, you won't have time off. You'll be expected to work from home, even if your house is, or your neighbor's house is flooding. Like people, well, you know, it won't be that like, um, that sort of break from routine anymore. Well, even like when the, like in, in the 2011 floods, like, 
the the amazing community response couldn't have happened if council didn't provide the buses to like yeah, get people to the places awesome. or yeah. army wasn't there to rock up and provide the shovels and the like the the dump trucks to throw rubbish in like using resource using resources in this way is is such an important like we can't do a recovery if we're not using like coordinated resources yeah and because now like emergency response stops being a thing that just happens once every 20 years now it's just kind of back to back like we're in a and especially like with the virus right we're in just a semi-permanent state of partial emergency Mm. um where it's like fires virus which means we're never in an emergency yeah yeah yeah. which means there's no disruption to like the Mm. there's no disruption to everyday life so it's just normal now so so we can't we can't like spend a couple of days being like, oh, this is an unusual situation. We need to pull together and look after each other. It's just it, everything's always shit. We can't pull together and look after each other. We all need to retreat to our like our only like cool house, like room in our house, or and like make phone calls for the man. <laughs> but I mean, I guess it, what that means is that like instead of the spontaneous temporary like three days of communism, we actually need like a much more sustainable model that doesn't like fall yeah. apart when you have to put someone up in your um, living room for slightly too long. Yeah. And I think like, like what, what we need to like organize toward and like orient, orient, orient ourselves toward is that a lot of these emergencies are only emergencies because they disrupt, they, because they disrupt the business as usual kind of format of capitalism. Like, like a flood, like what, you know, what Mary Cook was, the argument she was making is like a flood isn't like called a flood unless it floods like land that people are trying to use in a certain way. Mm. Um, otherwise, we just call it like it's just the heavy river. Rain. Like, it's just like it's just heavy rain. Like yeah. the rivers just get big sometimes. Like that's <laughs> just what happens. It, and what we need is for their like we've got a political economy which which is like conditioned on not being able to stop for a week and do something else, even if that's the most important thing. And you saw this as soon as like Corona happened. Like obviously the response was okay. All of society all over the world needs to use any of the like. For like tons and tons of food that could feed us all for a year but instead rots we all need to just shut the fuck up for two months have that distributed to everybody who's got a nice home and like wait this out until it goes away but we can't do that because we need to keep going we need to like like in the capital that's need to, that's been invested needs to be valorized and like and realized immediately um and like a disaster is only a disaster in so much as it disrupts the political economy that we've developed mm. mm-hmm I guess that's like the Suez Canal as well. Yeah, I was kind um, of thinking about that. Is there a way just, to tie back that yeah, beautiful like, ever given? Yeah, like, well, like blocking the Suez Canal is completely not a problem whatsoever. It's it's only a problem in that it prevents like a huge amount of capital investment from being realised, and that's mm. that's why we love the Evergreen. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we? Yeah, yeah. I reckon we should wrap it up. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, maybe we could like briefly talk about like what sorts of things we should like organized toward well, um, yeah, to like mitigate kind of some of these things because it's been a little bit bleak and i think I, we should I, maybe yeah. be like like this is why you should like be a part of your housing union and, and orient towards like building public housing because that is something that addresses all of these things yeah no that's that's very true yeah i mean i think it's hard it's particularly hard with this kind of topic to end on a hopeful note because it does feel so abstract and almost out of our control like a lot of the things we talk about on the show problems of social alienation of um you know poverty and inequality like we you know we usually end by at least giving a, a slight plug to do look for the greens yeah well um, like you know you can you can join a political party and you can yeah. like build a social movement that taxes the billionaires and does this stuff yeah but like i think 
maybe just psychologically with climate stuff, it's harder because it feels, even though we know that it is, you know, anthropogenic climate change, um, it is, it feels out of our control in a way. It feels almost like the ship's already sailed. But I think, you know, there is The ship's already gone sideways. <laughs> the ship has gone sideways. It's lodged in the Suez Canal. You are the little tractor, like, <laughs> pathetically digging at the side. Um, but I think maybe there is room there to reorient thinking towards, okay, like, we know these disasters are going to happen. Like, best case scenario, climate change is still going to fuck shit up. But thinking more about response, recovery, adaptation, um, you know, what are the things we can do? I think there are organized more concrete organizing actions that can be taken around that. Uh, yeah. Things that I, you know, me personally, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm not super in touch with any of that stuff, but I think social the point about social housing is a good one. And actually I am, and I was just thinking um, the stuff about, about local food systems and making food systems more resilient did come up during the pandemic in particular when, um, traditional food supply chains were shown to be not that great in an emergency, like almost like this just-in-time model sucks and shouldn't be relied upon by most of the country for food security. So that would be another thing I would I would mention. Um, Do you have solutions, Matt? No. No, okay. I mean, Damn. I think like the two <laughs> most immediate things would be like guaranteed housing, like we need public housing, but the other one would be a shorter work week where like mm. it's yeah, much think, easier yeah. to dedicate time in your community to like building relationships. So if there is like some sort of shock, you can like, you've got an extra day a week to be like, Oh, bloody Jerry doesn't do great in the heat. I'm going to go and check on Jerry. Maybe bring in (laughs) some of the cucumbers that I grow on my other Fridays off. (laughs) I reckon that's actually really true. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't thought about that. I think that's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, just like having that. Yeah. Like having less stuff to disrupt, just like, being able to say, well, look, we like it, the if we didn't have this constant cycle of like we have to, this like manic, like we have to extract as much profit as possible from everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. taking a week off isn't a problem when like yeah. that doesn't mean your capital investment is wasted. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, you heard it here, 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 folks. Oh, we what's probably the need next? Communism. What's the next podcast? Is it going to be a super? Yeah, we're doing super this Thursday. Hell yeah! All right, stay tuned for that. All right, see. Bye. Bye.